2 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you'll open your Bibles there. And i got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to just jump right into it as you're making your way there. Many of you, if not all of you, remember a few years ago, uh, there was an event in the news. Tragically, there was an Asian airline that was landing at San Francisco Airport. And they came in too low, and they hit the retaining wall, and, and tragically, a couple of people lost their lives in the whole ordeal. And uh, you know how news crews are. They all want to get in on being, you know, the scooping of the story. And so they all descended on San Francisco Airport, and there was a television crew from the Bay Area that was wanting to scoop everybody else. And so, um, so they got this this information off of Twitter, of all places, and they violated the first principle of journalism, which is you always got to check your sources. Well, they didn't check their sources, and they wanted to be first to publish the pilots' names, and so taking it off Twitter, they reported that the pilots' names were Something Wong, We Too Low, and Wong Wei, <laughs> Right? Obviously, they were tragically wrong. It was somebody playing a very cruel joke there. Anyway, you got to fact check your sources. What's that got to do with Second Peter? Well, that's basically the message of chapter 2. That, listen, you, so, Peter's going, hey, man, something's wrong here. And, and, and there's, some, there's some, some phony baloney stories that are going out, and you got to fact check it. That's what he's talking about here. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Here in this second epistle, Peter is warning his readers, the recipients of the epistle, and for us that would follow thousands of years later, he's warning them, listen, you, need, you got some problems that are inside the church that you need to deal with. This first letter that he sent, 1 Peter, was to, tell, to, was to warn them, hey, there's some, some persecution you're going to face, and let me encourage you about this persecution. This second letter, hey, there's some problems. You've got false teachers among you. This is what Peter is warning about. And so as he builds to this, as we've seen, chapter 1, Peter lays a foundation, and he says there, hey, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and, and he says, because of that, we have been given exceedingly precious promises in Jesus Christ. And the implication, Peter says, is that we can be partakers of his divine nature. We, as children of God, can experience the full power of God and enjoy the inheritance that Jesus Christ has purchased for us on the cross. And he's reminding the hearers of, of this great inheritance that we have. But in that, Peter goes on to say that, hey, with that comes a responsibility. That as children of God, you have to grow up. you got to mature. And so he goes through a section there saying, there's things that you need to add to your faith. Not to earn salvation. No, but, but because you're a child of God, because you're a member of the household of God, hey, everybody in the house has got duties and responsibilities, and chief among them is that we grow up and mature. And so he says, hey, there's things that you have to add to your faith. 
And he concludes the first chapter emphasizing, hey, listen, my message is true. The Bible, the prophets, they're all true. And he does that because now he's going to warn us that some things aren't true. And so he says, look, there's going to be false teachers among us. Even as there were, Peter would say in chapter 1, holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, there's also going to be false teachers that are moved by covetousness, that are moved by lust, and that are moved by greed. And so Peter says here in chapter one or chapter two, verse one, that these false teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, they don't broadcast their intentions, that they move secretly. Jude, in his epistle, he warns also about false teachers and the secretiveness under which they operate. And he, he describes them as people who creep in unnoticed. People who creep in unnoticed. And the, the Greek of that phrase basically means that they creep in under false pretense. That, that these false teachers are like the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, Grandma, what, what big eyes you have. Well, the better to see you, my dear. Grandma, what, what a big nose you have. Oh, the better to smell you, my dear. Grandma, what big teeth you have. Oh, the better to eat you, my dear. And this is the idea. False teachers, they creep in. They don't broadcast their intentions, but they want to eat you up. This is why the Bible calls them wolves, because they want to devour you. So Peter warns, he goes, look, you're going to have wolves among you that are going to lead you astray. And sadly, he's right. Not only in Peter's day and age and in the church that he was writing to warn, but in our day and age, that there are false teachers that are sprinkled throughout the 21st century church and that they, like these wolves in sheep's clothing, come in and their desire is to feed upon you, to, to lead you astray. And so they teach false doctrine. They teach that God wants you to be rich. They teach you that, hey, homosexuality, abortion, they're acceptable practices. There's actually false teachers in the church that are defending these practices. I was going to cite a whole lot of different examples, and sadly, there's just too many examples for me to, to start getting into. The tragic, I mean, you see things like, you know, a group of, of you know, so-called Christians at, 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 a, at a pro-choice rally, rallying for the, the right and the opportunity and the privilege for, for women to abort their babies, and they are saying, God's cool with it. There are false teachers that are, are throughout the church today, they're teaching that the Bible's not reliable. They teach, hey, you know what? The Word of God, it was written 2,000 years ago, and we now, thousands of years later, we are much more enlightened, and so we're better able to interpret the Bible than the people that wrote it. They wrote it in ignorance, but now we can take those, and we can say, no, that's not really what it means. It actually means this. And the reason that they do that, Peter says, is because they're covetous. They're covetous. They have these, these, this desire to live they want to live. And so, you know, here the people are, are just throughout the church today, false doctrine rampant. Hey, you know what? Marriage, yeah, it's not between Adam and Eve. It can be between Adam and Steve. Everything's fine, you know. And so there is false doctrine that, that, that is rampant within the church today. And in every instance, what you see is that these false teachers, they twist the scriptures, 
Now, why do false teachers persist? That's the the working question for us today. And uh, firstly, Peter says, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, false teachers are popular. Why do they persist in the church today? Because they're popular. Notice again there in verse 2, what does Peter say? He says that many will follow their destructive ways. This is a no-brainer. Why do people follow their destructive ways? Why are they popular? Well, Here's what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires, and these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Haven't you experienced that? That your sinful nature wars against the things of God? And so you have a natural tendency within you to want to do things that you shouldn't do. Paul lamented about this. That that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. What a wretched man I am, Paul would say. Who's going to save me from this body of death? The answer, of course, is Jesus. Jesus saves us from that. But we, we, our compass in the flesh is set on these sinful desires. Paul continues, he says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And then he says this, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life, and the idea is a habitual practice. Not that, you know, oh, I sinned, Lord have mercy, I just, I fell into this. But he's talking about anybody whose lifestyle, ongoing, living in this way, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So our sinful nature wants to do evil. And false teachers, they're very popular because they preach a message that appeals to that that appeals to the sinful lusts of our hearts. And, and accordingly, the false teachers' churches are packed full. Why? Because people want to hear what they have to say. But just because something works, air quotes, in attracting a crowd, doesn't mean that it's of God. Does not mean that it's of God. So that's the first thing that Peter says. He says uh, that false teachers are popular. But the second thing that he says is false teachers have a plan. False teachers have a plan. Notice there in verse 3, he says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now that word covetousness, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you could circle the word covetousness. And, and, and next to it, well, the Greek word is, is pleonoxia. And, uh, and here's what it means. It means a desire for more. A desire for more. Years ago, John Rockefeller, richest man who's ever lived, was asked the question, I'll paraphrase it, dude, you're rich. How much is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. And that's the nature of our flesh. And and so false teachers, they want to play on that covetousness. And, And so by covetousness, by the desire for more, Peter warns that false teachers are going to exploit you. Now, this is an interesting phrase, the way, it's, the way Peter words it. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now, does this mean that false teachers are themselves covetous or are 
you the one that's covetous? And the answer is, it's both. Let's start with the false teachers. False teachers are themselves covetous. They, have, they, they covet in their heart. This is why you see them living in multi-million dollar homes. Now, there are a number of false teachers, and if I told you their names, you would readily recognize them as these people that have huge ministries, huge churches, but they're false teachers, and they operate by covetousness. And so because they are covetous, you look at them. One, one guy has a net worth of almost $1 billion. He owns four private jets, has multiple mansions. Now, is that a man who's covetous? Yes or no? Yes, it is. And, and he is operating on praying on the people of God, on the church of God. So, so yes, false teachers are themselves covetous, but also they play on the covetousness of the hearts of their hearers. And so what happens is they present a deceptive gospel that coveting ears, that coveting hearts, that coveting minds want to hear. And so they tell you, hey, you know what? You should be rich. You should sleep with whoever you want. You should embrace any lifestyle. And you know what? God's cool with it all. Total blasphemy, total lie from the pit of hell. But they know that it appeals to the flesh. And man, who doesn't want to get behind that? And so people eat it up. As a pastor, and I've been a pastor for well over 20 years, and I have people that call me up that come to see me, and, and basically that what they are looking for is for me as a pastor, as a person who's, a, who's in a position of spiritual authority, to, to, to rubber stamp what they're doing and say, yeah, you're good, Why? So that they can go out and feel good about the sin that they're committing and the gratification of their sinful desires. Why? Well, because I have the covering of a spiritual authority, so God's good with it. And so this is what false teachers offer, and this is why they're so popular, that people are eating it up. Why do they eat it up? Because it appeals to their sinful nature, because it appeals to their sinful heart. And listen, because it reduces God and elevates them. It makes them God and it makes God into somebody who exists just to serve them and to serve their pleasures. Listen to this quote from a false teacher. This is a person that co-pastors what is probably the largest church in America today. And so here's a quote from this, and I will use air quotes, pastor This person says this, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God, we're doing it for ourselves, because God takes pleasure when we're happy. So I want you to know, just do God for your own self. Do good, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really, You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy, end quote. That's blasphemy, flat out blasphemy. Here's what this person is saying. They're saying, you know what? God's a a pinata and you, guess what? You get to exercise all the power and control. You just wield that stick of prayer, just beat that pinata for all it's worth and pretty soon all the goodies are gonna come flying out. That's what this doctrine says. This doctrine says, you're the master, God's the genie, 
And he just exists to do your good pleasure. So, you know, you just make sure that, you know, you put God where he needs to be and tell him what you want. And he just, his only reason for existing is to give you everything you ever wanted. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Give it all to me, God. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a lie. But people eat it up. They absolutely eat it up. Now, Paul warned against this. He was writing to Timothy, a young pastor. And he told him, look, you better preach the word. You better stick to that true north of the compass of God's word. Why? Here's what he said. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, people that are going to scratch them where they itch. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's why Peter emphasized in chapter 1 of this epistle, saying, look, we're not telling fables here. We're not telling you some wild story. We're telling you the truth. God's honest truth. That yes, you're a child of God. Yes, you can be a partaker of the divine nature. But God's not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't exist so that you can be King Farouk and live any way you want. You need to live as a child of God, being obedient to your heavenly Father and living the way that he prescribes that you need to live. Listen, if you want deep faith, you're going to have to go through deep things. Years ago, Brenda and I, we went on vacation. We We had at the time an RV, and we had some friends that went with us. And we were going up Highway 1. And, and if you've driven up Highway 1, you know it's, you've got these incredible views, and, but it's a very narrow road, right? And there's these very narrow bridges that you have to cross over that were built back in the 30s, you know? And so Brenda and I were on this trip. We're, we're with a couple of friends of ours, and it's, it's storming. It's raining, and the wind's blowing like crazy. And, and here we are on, on Pacific Coast Highway, just going up Highway 1. And, and Brenda's nervous about it. And she says to me, is this really such a good idea? Like, you know, there's... <laughs> she's like, right? So she says, is this really such a good idea? I mean, this, this road is prone to landslides and rocks fall down. And, you know, this... I, I don't know if this is such a great idea. I'm like, oh, come on. We're fine. We're fine. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. So we stopped for dinner at this restaurant along the way, and we, we all go in, and Brenda says to the waitress, she says, hey, uh, is, is it safe to drive up this road right now? And the gal looks at us with this look of terror. She goes, are you driving that huge RV out there? And, uh, and she's like, yes. She goes, I wouldn't do it. Brenda looks at me, she's like... Brenda wasn't telling me what I wanted to hear. The waitress wasn't telling me what I wanted to hear. So I said, you guys are high, man. Don't, don't worry about it. We're going to be fine. So stubbornly, we get in the RV, and I start heading up the road. I kid you not. It was not like three minutes later. We are literally on one of those narrow bridges, and Ronette, one of the, the, the gal that, that's with us with her husband, she screams out, rock, rock. I slam on the brakes. There's a rock the size of a Volkswagen right in the middle of the road. Like I barely avoided hitting this thing. Well, Brenda, bless her heart, she had gone into the back, <laughs> into the back of the RV to change into her pajamas at that particular point. And so when I slam on the brakes, she comes tumbling out naked from the waist up, just rolling right on out in all her glory. 
it wasn't a pretty trip from then on out. Let me just tell you, not for me. But I do have to say, you should have seen my driving skills turning a 30-foot RV around on a narrow bridge, man, while I'm watching for the cousin of this huge boulder to come rolling down on top of us, narrowly escaped with my life. Point is, man, it's not always about what you want to hear. It's frequently about what you don't want to hear. The Bible tells you some difficult things. If you want deep faith, you have to go through deep things. And deep things don't come from shallow desires. Deep things don't come from empty promises. Deep things don't come from dry wells. And Peter's going to say that. If you look, skip ahead and look at verse 17, he says, These, speaking of false teachers, he says, They're wells without water. He says they're clouds carried by a tempest. In other words, they're clouds that that promise rain, but they never deliver. He says, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And so understanding that false teachers are popular, understanding that false teachers have a plan, here's Peter's next point, false teachers are promised judgment. They're promised judgment. This is what Peter says here in verse 17, hey, For those guys, it's reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Also there, if you look at verse 3, what does Peter say? He says, their judgment has not been idle. I like the way the New English Bible translates that verse. It says, their condemnation pronounced long ago is not sitting idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, hey, it might look like they're prospering now. It might look like, hey, those that are preaching these prosperity gospels that are, that are teaching false doctrine, living in a mansion, you know, flying a private airplane, whatever it is, might look like they're being blessed now, prospering now, might look like they're getting away with it. Peter says, no, they face a certain judgment. And now what Peter's going to go on to do is he's going to give us biblical examples of, of those that faced judgment in the past. Basically, he's saying, look, you can take this thing to the bank. So verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but, second example, saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, And, third example, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And, and he gives a positive example, which we'll come back to, delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, here's Peter reiterating his point about judgment, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might uh, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Here's what Peter says. He says, look, let me give you three examples of God's past judgment. When I tell you that the false teachers are going to lead you straight to hell and that you don't want to follow them because they're going to be judged. 
And if you follow him, you're going to be judged. Peter says, I'm going to give you three examples. So he gives us the example of the angels that sinned. Now, how did they sin against God? Well, we know biblically that a third of the angels in heaven, when Satan rebelled, they went with him, and so they rebelled against him, and certainly this is referring to that. But it also possibly refers to the angels that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, where it tells us there that the sons of God, speaking of these angelic beings, had sexual relations with women, as they weren't supposed to do. Now that's controversial and it's highly debated and so on. But the point here is that God did not spare the angels that sinned. But rather he judged them. And it says there in verse 4, He cast them down to hell and delivered them into eternal chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, the question comes up this way. You go, well, wait a minute, because there are angelic beings. We call them demons. They are active and working and alive and well in this world, uh, causing torment. So that doesn't exactly look like they've been delivered into chains of darkness. So, so how do we reconcile this? I don't exactly know. We could say, well, God lives outside of time and space, and so whatever he says and the edicts that he makes, you can take to the bank. And so when they're reserved for chains of darkness, it may just be, look, this is, this is where they're at. It may be, hey, they were cast out of heaven, now they're on the earth, and they're working deeds of darkness, and so that's what it has to do. It may be that some of them already are chained up in darkness, and some of them are free to operate in the world. The point is, they're all judged Take it to the bank. That's Peter's point. Second example Peter gives is God's judgment of the wicked, Noah's flood. And the third example is God's judgment of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these three examples of judgment show us the important principle here about judgment. First of all, God judged the angels who sinned. And so, hey, no one's too high to be judged. That's the idea. I don't care who you are. That if, you, that if you are not following the ways of God, that you are going to face a certain judgment. And we know we're all going to face judgment. Christian, non-Christian. The, the non-Christian is going to face a judgment of your works. The Christian is going to be judged. His works are going to be judged as to reward. It's a longer message than I have time for right now. But judgment waits, awaits all of us. You just want to be in the latter group. You want to be in the Christians whose works are going to be judged as to reward. You don't want to be somebody that God judges according to their works. So you say, hey, you know what? Why should I go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Because, you know, I'm not Charles Manson or anything. You know, I haven't killed anybody lately. So I'm basically a good person. Hey, you don't want to be judged on that standard. So, so the first idea of the angels is nobody's too high to be judged. The example of the ancient world, Noah's flood, is, is hey, God doesn't grade on a curve. His judgment is, is total. It is, it is absolutely the same yesterday, today, forever. His standard never changes. It is that true north that you're going to be judged according to. And then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is basically this. Look, even the prosperous are going to be judged. If you know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wicked sexually, but they were being blessed abundantly, materially. They were prosperous, wealthy, and yet they were judged. Here's Peter's point. He says, look, false teachers and those who follow them can take it to the bank that they're going to be judged. They face a certain judgment. Now, conversely, Peter also cites an example of God's grace to save even in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation. Verses 7 and 8, we look again at Lot. It says, God delivered righteous Lot, 
who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Again, what's Lot's history? He was camping out near Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where he made his home. And, and there was a proximity to this evil wickedness. But what, what God is making clear here in his word is that even though he lived and, and enjoyed living in the place that he lived, he was tormented in his heart by the sin that was happening there. In other words, the, their sin didn't rub off on him. He was able to maintain a righteousness to be able to say, God, my heart breaks for these people, but, but, but I'm not going to fall into their false and wicked ways. You and I, Christians, we are called to be in this world, but not of this world. And sometimes we live in very dark surroundings, very dark places. Now, we're commanded to come out from them, from among them and be separate. But the Bible also talks about how the fact that we are to be, you know, ambassadors for Christ, witnesses of Christ in the midst of a perverse generation, to shine our light in the midst of a perverse generation. And so we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's what, what, what Lot is here an example of. The point is we have a choice. That's what I want you to hear this morning. We have a choice. We can receive the truth of God's word and we can be saved from this perverse generation. Or we can receive the lies of false teachers and we can face the judgment that they're going to face. As we consider that, as we take a walk with that, at this point in the message, I just want to, I just want to hit the pause button. A friend of mine, Andy Dean, who is the, the director of the Bible College, sent me a video yesterday, text message, and said, hey, um, I, I put together a video, and uh, you know, if, if you can use this, and I'm just sharing it with you. And It's his testimony. He was at Ground Zero on 9-11. And his testimony has a bearing on, on the Peter's message here. And so I thought here on, on 9-11, it might be a perfect opportunity to share it with you. It's a little bit long, but it's a video testimony of what he went through. So we'll share it with you, and, uh, and then we'll talk, uh, we'll talk some more.
turn and face the Lord, repent of your sins, and begin to follow him. And he'll give you the strength to do it. Some Andy said there um, at the end, many of you have met Andy, he's taught for me before, and uh, he's actually going to be teaching for me in um, November when I go to Ireland. But um, I love his summary of his experience. He said, I was a mess, but God was good. He said, there's always a chance to turn around. You don't need a tragedy to do that. Any time is a good time to return and face the Lord, to repent of your sin and to follow him. And he'll give you the strength to do it. And, you know, we all remember where we were on 9-11. We all remember that the churches were packed for weeks afterwards. Uh, We, you know, I think about the parable of the soils. Jesus was given this parable. He says, you know, some some seeds went into stony ground. Some went into, you know, good ground. Some some went into thorny ground. And he began to explain. And he said, you know, the seed that falls in the thorny ground... It's choked, out, it's choked out by the weeds. It becomes unfruitful. And what happened for a brief moment after 9-11 was that the thorns were burned away. And people were reminded of what matters and reminded of what the lie is, really, that they bought into. But man, those, those thorns came back. For us today, here, the lessons of Second Peter, the anniversary of 9-11... I just want to remember that there's a broad road and a narrow road. Jesus said there's the broad road that that leads to destruction and everybody and their brother are on it. But there's a narrow road that leads to life and there's few that find it. And so as we conclude the service, as we pray, I ask you to consider the road you're on today. And maybe this reminder and maybe this message that there's a boatload of lies and plenty of people telling those lies What are you believing? Because as we come to the communion table, the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we have the opportunity today to recognize, man, maybe I've bought into a lie. Maybe I've been believing a lie. Maybe I've held two false teachers in in a covetous kind of faith. And I invite you today to repent of that and to cling to the one who gives life.